You are listening to the Noisy Narratives podcast, a podcast produced by the Women of First Ministries at Frisco First Baptist Church in Frisco, Texas. Here at Noisy Narratives, we like to cut through the noise of our stories and get to the heart of what really matters. We hope you are blessed by what we share. Thank you so much for listening. Isn't it amazing? All right, you ready? Okay. Yep. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Noisy Narratives. This is Debbie, and I'm here with Christy, and we're recording a little different today, so we may sound a little weird for a little intro. We're actually recording in our homes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this is the first time we've done this, so we'll see how this works, right? We'll see how this goes. Um, but our intro today is going to be just real short and sweet, real quick, because um, we have an incredible guest who um, has a lot of testimony to share so we want to make sure and give him time for that but Christy what are what's our little opener for today what are what are we discussing um so this week on if you're doing like an advent study um just kind of preparing your heart for Christmas coming up um this week for most advent studies is kind of the study or the word is hope um and so studying verses and passages that give you hope during this time and the hope is what it is, is the hope of, you know, Christ being born and then also Christ coming back to save us. And so there's always kind of a twofold to the Advent season of what's coming in Christmas and what are we celebrating, but also what is there to come for us? Um, what hope do we have as believers here for Jesus to come back? And so I thought I would share um, just thoughts on hope and what does that look like and like a biblical hope. Um, I was I was reading this past week. I thought it was interesting that they said hope is a choice, but you have to choose sometimes hope. And I think that I've been reading a lot of the Old Testament right now and prophets and um, Genesis. And it's funny because there's always a glimmer of hope and doom and gloom. And when the prophets are talking, God always offers hope and you just have to find it and you have to look for it and you have to make a choice to see it. And then this week in our life group, we talked about it being hope this week. And what does that mean for our week? And to journal pretty much every day on where you saw hope in your day. Because, um, again, you have to you have to look for it. Like, it's not something that's – and I do think Satan deceives us really well at times. And so you do have to go and, and look for it and find it. But I loved the verse, since we're doing at homes and on our phones, let me um, – find this verse and it talks about how like biblical hope is not based on circumstances um if they're they're choosing to do it they trust god's word they trust his promises they trust his character and it's from micah 7 and it says surely a son considers his father a fool a daughter opposes her mother and a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law a man's enemies are the men of his own household but i will look to the lord i will wait for the god of my salvation god will hear me this is my favorite part. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, exclamation point. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. And though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. And so just showing, um, you know, how that person is seeking to find, like, I, I could be down, but I'm going to stand up. It could be dark, but I'm going to find the light. So that's my thoughts on hope. I love that. Because I think hope is a lot of times the central theme, right? If we're mm -hmm. um, understanding what God provided in his son. And so whether this season is difficult, whether you're going through family circumstances right now that are hard, 
or whether this is season full of joy um, and you're finding the season to be of ease, you know, either way, um, the context of the season is hope because God has a plan. He's sovereign. This was his plan was to send his son. Um, mm -hmm. And even our interview today, um, the gentleman we're interviewing, um, many the would, the doctor, <laughs> yes, he's a professor, um, very knowledgeable, but some would have looked at his story early on in his life and said it was hopeless, you know, mm -hmm. it was lacking hope. Um, he has a truly amazing testimony of how God has used his life to now um, be a testimony in a way he can give um, others hope and other parents who may be struggling with their kids, um, with addictions um, and other things. He will look at that and said, there is hope because um, he's a living embodiment of that, um, of how God, um, through his son, um, changed a life. And um, so I think, I'm, I hope that, I hope that um, when people listen to the interview today, that even though, you know, you need to be careful, we taught, there is a lot of discussion um, of addiction and drugs. So if you're in the car with your kiddos, just know that you may want to listen to this a different time, but um, there is, Dr. O gives us reason um, to remember that um, Jesus truly changes the world and mm -hmm. makes it different. And so there's hope now and there's hope in eternity, both. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think hope's a great thing to be talking about today, especially in this um, part of Advent. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so let's listen to Dr. Oh, and by the grace of Jesus, he's still alive and his parents love him and they get to hang out with him. I know. And you're, you guys are going to hear that when you hear his story. You're going to say it really is by the grace of God. Um, and he, he says that, too. He gives all the glory to to God and to Jesus, his Savior um, and the Holy Spirit that dwells in him. So anyway, we want you guys to enjoy the interview. So thank you for putting up with our different kind of recording today. Um, but we had to do this for various reasons. But um, anyway, we will talk to you later. But for now, here's the interview. I'm okay, <laughs> that laugh you heard right there, that is our guest today, and Christy's, Christy's going to introduce him, and he is a lot of fun. So this is John Okanaga. Yes. Oh, good, I said it right. You got it right. Also known as Dr. O to mm -hmm. certain students. He's got one son named James, who's three. <laughs> He's three. We just learned this. <laughs> That's why I'm saying that. Um, and you have a wife. You're originally... Nicole. Oh, I thought you were going to say No. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You're like, no. Not, yeah, that would yes. be a problem. <laughs> yes. Nicole. Nicole. You were born in Hawaii? Yes. Then moved to California? Correct. And then moved here? Yes. And the only other place you want to be besides Texas is Hawaii, so you're having to stay here. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> and why do we love Hawaii so much, besides the obvious? Because it's home. The beautiful. It's okay, there you go. His people are You got family there, too, right? Yeah. Family, friends. Yeah. You know, it's, it's home. It's home. And you're oh. a professor at Southwestern... Baptist, Baptist Theological Seminary. That is correct. So oh. Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Okay. In Fort Worth. In Fort Worth. Okay. And you drove an hour to hang out with us. We correct. are very grateful. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite students is here at your church and you know, I pick on her every class. So when she said, hey, will you do a podcast? I'm like, if I say no, I can't pick on her That's and right. that wouldn't be fun. So I said yes. And your student is Kelly Gilbert. Yes. Who's actually sitting in the room with us. You can't hear her, but she's over there with her coffee. 
and her water jug, and she's ready to take notes. This is very exciting. I don't know why you want to take notes here in my <laughs> class. <laughs> you never know. Okay, we're happy you're here. You are a author, and you've written a couple of amazing books. Debbie has one sitting in front of her right now. I do. It's it's not published yet, but yeah, you wrote it's a book. Like, this is the just the early version. It's like, coming we get out. First look. I know. It's kind of cool. But you wrote a book called My Loved One is an Addict, Now What? A Simple Guide for Families of Addicts. And then um, From Sin to Disease, this was your, you called it your... This is my dissertation. Dissertation. Yeah. Uh, the Medicalization of Addiction and Its Influence on How the Southern Baptist Convention Approaches Ministering to Those Who Struggle with Mind-Altering Substances. Yep. So we're going to talk about that one on part two. You also wrote How God Sanitized My Soul. Was that your first book? That was my first book. Oh, so tell us, how did God sanitize your soul? You know, I was born and raised in the church. Negative nine months, my mom was, you know, pregnant with me in church. Negative um, nine months, that's yeah. awesome. I've been, so I was hearing Jesus from the womb. Um, my dad was Sunday school director, Sunday school teacher, mom, Sunday school, Sunday school teacher. Um, I went to a Christian elementary school. I went to a Baptist high school. And then my senior year of high school, my mom got sick with a rare neurological disease called myasthenia gravis. And that kind of just started my questioning of God, mm. you know, like, how could you take this vibrant woman who's been serving you for, you know, most of her life? And, and now she's, you know, hanging on by a thread at that point in high school. So it started to make me question God. And, um, and then a couple months later, my mom's mom, my mom's dad, uh, was diagnosed with kidney failure. So he was put on dialysis. Mm. And then my dad's dad was diagnosed with cancer. So within the span of, like a year, three of the most influential people in my life got sick with some pretty bad stuff. You know, and I started to uh, party. I was a great kid in um, my Baptist high school. So kind of like how you guys have mm-hmm. your good kids out there. That mm-hmm. was me. Never yeah. Was never late for class. Mm-hmm. Never in trouble. Never had a demerit. That was me. Mm-hmm. And then college came. And I was like, oh, this is... All the choices. This is fun, you know? And I started to make some very poor decisions um, freshman year of college you know some people would say how bad was it and I was like well it's pretty bad and the reason why I don't talk about how bad it was is that doesn't define who I am you, you know, mean your choices like my choices specific and if like if I said what were your choices you would say oh my choices were cocaine ecstasy alcohol weed you know, I started off with with marijuana I think that's where most gateway, gateway. Um, marijuana then it went to alcohol then it went to ecstasy then it went to cocaine oh um, so that was kind of my progression and I was through bad. all four years. Sorry. I like to interrupt as you're sure, talking. No, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so freshman, freshman year of college, I started, you know, smoking weed and, and drinking. And then is I this got, in Hawaii. This See is another Hawaii. question. Sorry. Yeah. I got kicked out of my first school oh. um, when I was 18. Oh, um, funny story. I can't attend a single college in Hawaii. I've been kicked they out of every single you? one. How many are there in Hawaii, though? Uh, so I got kicked out of University of Hawaii. I got kicked out of Chaminade University. I got kicked out of Hawaii Pacific University. I got kicked out of Kapiolani <laughs> Community is, College. Uh, a community? You got kicked out of a community college? Twice. <laughs> I didn't know they did that. Yeah, they did. And then wow. I got kicked out of like a non-accredited Bible college as well <laughs> in Hawaii. So... Well, time out. Parents are flipping out. Are your parents alive and have they recovered from their sickness first? Mom is still alive. Okay. Um, yes, they're, they're both still alive. They actually just spoke to my class two weeks ago. That's fun. So so my class heard from, from mom and dad. 
uh, yeah. How did they handle you getting kicked out of classes? Not classes, schools. Schools. Oh, yeah. I got kicked out of schools, multiple schools. they kick schools. you out of their house? I moved out at 17. Uh, so as soon as I graduated high school, I moved out of the house. Um, my grandparents needed help, so I moved in with my grandparents, and I was basically their uh, chauffeur, mm-hmm. driving them to all of their doctor's appointments. So my fr- freshman year was go to school in the morning, drive mom to a doctor's appointment, come home. Smoke weed. Smoke weed. Drink. No, I never drank during the day. I was a good oh. alcoholic. I only oh, drank at night. at night. Sun yeah. goes down. Yeah, sun goes it. down. Then you can drink. Mm-hmm. No. What's wrong with you? You can't drink during the day. That changed later on, though. Trust me. I'm sure. Yeah, it's called it, day it, drinking. It, it happens a lot. Yeah. There's even songs about it. Yes. Well, we're in Texas. You, your country songs are all about drinking. They're and, so and bad right up. now. So, um, yeah, so my freshman year was wake up, go to school, take mom to a doctor's appointment, go back to school drive one of my grandfathers to appointment, go back to school, then, you know, mm-hmm. smoke weed at night and drink at night. Um, but then it progressed, you know, like after I finally got kicked out of the final college and I think I was like 23, <laughs> when it, you know, they finally said like, yeah, we're done. You know, we're, you're no longer allowed to attend. Mm-hmm. I think I'm one of the few um, University of Hawaii people who was actually given a third shot. Mm. And usually after two, they're done. Mm-hmm. But I met someone who knew someone and they pulled some strings for me. And oh, uh, yeah, that didn't go so well. I was like, I can't wait to see how that went. Oh, yeah. My last my last semester at University of Hawaii was one D and three Fs. Holy cow. That takes a lot of talent. So I think my my transcript is like a point seven. Why did you keep trying? Why didn't you just call it quits? Because I'm Asian and you need an education. <laughs> I mean, what I figured out relatively my freshman year of college, I made more money doing other stuff than my friends with degrees were making. Mm-hmm. So you, from your perspective, you were going back just because your family and it yeah. was expectations and all that kind oh, of yeah. stuff. Oh, I, yeah. I, you didn't want to. No. Freshman year, I was like, my buddies who had college degrees, I saw what, how yeah. much they were making. And I'm like. You're making more. I'm making that in a day. So your parents now knowing that, so you're... Oh, you're, they didn't know. They had no idea you're you're smoking. No. You're, wow. Because you're not living with them. You're living with living grandma. With yeah, I was living with grandma. What's grandma's name? Like, do you call her grandma? Oh, grandma O. Grandma O. Yeah, Okinawa. So and my, did she know? No. So you hit it. Oh, yeah. Even like um, like the big stuff towards the end? Oh, and the end I got caught. But I mean, that was... What? My addiction was 13 years. Mm. So keep telling we're like four or five in, aren't we? No, we're still at year one. Oh, you're a freshman. <laughs> you know, you, I'm at the end of I'm at the yeah, end of college. Yeah, 23. You said you got kicked out of five colleges. Yeah, what yeah. happens then? You're so what happens then? College. So then I just started working. You know, my mom had a my family had a, a family business, a beauty salon. So I did that. I did marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. getting business. You know, talking to the to the um, clients, and then I I worked for Paul Mitchell for a bit. I did some business building lectures for them. And so, you know, that was kind of just my life and just flooding around doing whatever I wanted. Um, I'd work from eight to 12. And then partied from 12 on. Yeah. Well, 1201, you can start drinking, right? You're not an alcoholic as as long as you don't drink after 12. As long as there's a PM after the time. Exactly. So, I mean, I'd have (laughs) all my business meetings and it just might happen to be at a restaurant. And at the restaurant, you probably had. Oh, yeah. Jack Daniels. Oh, yeah. You know, so 
Um, and then I started to do nightclub promotions. Um, I was in the nightclub scene pretty heavy for for a while. Do you have some crazy nightclub stories? Yeah, but I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> you can go home now. What? That's what we're here for. I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> it, crazy. Some of the... <laughs> I'm not going to get fired. No, me. you're good. Don't tell no. me. You don't have to get into detail. The, I'm guessing, so, though, you're fortunate you didn't get sick with some disease or something. That is correct. That I day. mean, and the other thing was, you know, my uncle was, um, he worked for the HPD, Honolulu Police Department, and mm-hmm. he trained um, eight years worth of cadets. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of my shenanigans were in Waikiki or in, in areas where they basically sent all the rookies. So anytime my name popped up, they're like, hey, is your uncle, you know, I won't say his name, but yeah. is that your uncle? And I'm like, yeah, that's my uncle. And they're like, hold on, sit here. And then they'd, they'd call my uncle, you know, two, three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Is, is Jonathan your nephew? And he's like, yes, that's my nephew. And I get off, you know, so there's, there's things where I should not. And that, I think that's where you see God's goodness, because if I'd ever been arrested for the things I should have been arrested for there's no way I'd be allowed to teach at our seminary oh that's a true story you're able to see that where you're at now though oh yeah yeah I mean that that's God's goodness and had a protection on me right there and I actually know for a fact if you know some of the things I should have been arrested for and gone to court for I would not be allowed to teach where I'm at right now Mm. you know and and um, I guess you want a story, you know, mm-hmm. one story was, um, just give me one, give me one. Um, man, I don't even know if my parents know about this. I lived in a hotel for like six weeks. Uh, you know, I, I, that was after my, um, it was after my mom's dad died. I just basically went bananas. You know, I just, I really went crazy and. Um, I was in a hotel for six weeks. I'd show up at home at my grandma's house like at six in the morning so no one knew that I was gone. Mm. You know, but they, they thought st- you slept there and you would get up like you had slept yeah. there. And this is just suffering, like dealing with a loss. You did not know how to handle no, this loss. I know how to do a loss. And, you know, I was part where I was 21. Oh, young. Yeah. So this is, I was still in, in school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I lived, I was in the hotel room and um, someone reported us to the cops. And um, so there's underage drinking. Um, and they found a lot of drugs actually that time. Mm. In the, you know, the cops came in. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm in deep trouble. Um, but they found the drugs and it was weird. They kicked everyone out and it was me and the sergeant at the time and we sat on the hotel bed and we're watching sports center or whatever it was on, on the TV. And we're waiting for my uncle to call in to say like, yes, that's my, that's my dumb nephew. And by God's grace, my uncle called at three and the cop was with me for an hour, hour and a half, just sitting on the bed. And he was like, if you want to have a beer, you can have a beer. Cause if, if this isn't legit, you're not going to have a beer for a while. Um, and my uncle called and said, yeah, that's my nephew. They flushed the drugs down the toilet. And yeah. Wow. But that that alone, I should be in. <laughs> in jail. Well, and I'm listening to your story and like we've laughed plenty. You can have a sense of humor sure. about some things. But there's a lot of pain involved in those kinds of experiences. I mean, yeah. are there's a lot of 
something what mm-hmm. would you call it the fact that that was at this point would you would you say looking back you were an addict at this point oh for sure okay yeah, so no what doubt. was calling you back at that point was the physical need for yeah the i mean drugs so I, I think you know we get a lot of confusion about the term addiction and you know some people call it a disease i, I call it you know if the chemicals in the body there's a sickness that's taking place and but i also believe that once the sickness is gone once you remove that the chemical it's not a disease it's a sin it, you know and, and there's a behavior that you want to go back to but i don't think you can test for um you can't test for a relapse you don't know when a relapse is coming you know and, and that's where i'm a little bit different from some biblical counselors some in the disease model 12-step model but at that point i was definitely sick and it, it wasn't i was doing drugs to feel good i was just doing drugs so i didn't feel sick anymore Mm-hmm. You know, once once you don't have that in your system, you're just you just don't want to feel sick anymore. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, for those no, it you. makes total sense. And you know, so your uncle keeps getting these calls. Then oh yeah, how how is that relationship between you and him if he's getting <laughs> That's what these I was calls? Wondering. Oh man, whenever we'd have weddings or funerals or whatever, he he'd pull me on the side and he goes, "Hey, I know you need you need to chill out." You Did know. he ever try to get you help or put in a rehab or? No, because like <laughs> that uncle drank probably just as much as anyone else. You know, okay. he was he was known as the fun uncle, the funkle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so even with his fellow cadets or whatever, he was a fun police uh, police officer, trainer, whatever. Um, but I do remember it was, it was kind of towards the end of of my time being stupid. Um, I actually got put over for a DUI and Is that actually, first time I only got put over for a DUI once. Oh, wow. You know, and, and I never, I never got a ticket The mm. once again, the, the police officer knew my uncle and my uncle said, you gotta stop. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this is it. Like no more, whatever. I'm not going to save you from this anymore. So after that, I just caught cabs. You know, I, I just, I would call a cab. We didn't have Uber back then. Right. Like this is pre-Uber. Yeah. For you young people, there was a time where there wasn't Uber or Lyft. Mm-hmm. Like you had to actually call the taxi. You use the phone. You use the phone. To you know? talk but to it someone. didn't, you didn't stop using drugs. You just stopped driving. Oh no, I just stopped driving. Yeah. You know, um, and then there was a, you know, I did some other bad things and um, yeah. So tell us the progression. So at this point, um, no more school. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you are sick. Like you would say yeah. at this point, um, mm-hmm. your body feels bad if you don't have drugs. Yeah. Right. So tell us the progression of what that started to look like when you started knowing things needed to change. Cause you're working then you're not, you're working quite a bit. So you're yeah. making money. I mean, right. Yeah. I, I guess maybe two, three years before I actually admitted I needed help. I would tell my mom, like, I need to take a couple months off from work. I just need to get away. You know, and they thought I was just being lazy and fair enough. That's mm-hmm. a genuine thing that my parents could have said back then. Like, yeah, he just doesn't want to work. But even from then, it's like, I just, I wanted to stop. I just didn't know how to stop. And, you know, by God's grace, ever since I've been sober, I've never relapsed. But what I tell those who are, you know, struggling and I'm like, hey, I probably, if we're going to use the term relapse after wanting to get help, I probably relapse every day for three years. And what I mean by that, like, I say, like, this is it. You know, this last weekend of partying, I'm done. Come Sunday morning, going to go to church, I'm going to turn my life around, and I'm done. 
And every Sunday morning, I'd be out of cocaine, and I'd call my drug dealer, like, hey, I need more cocaine. And that was going on for, like, three years, you yeah. said, like, on this week, up yeah. and down. You know, I, I was, I got to that point where it wasn't fun anymore. You know, I it, it just wasn't, it was just mm-hmm. a behavior, like, just a, a lifestyle that I just be, became so entrenched in where that was my life. I go to work, 12 to 8 to 12. Start drinking at 12. I drink till 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, go home, sleep for, you know, 6 hours, 5, 6 hours, go back to work, repeat the cycle over and over again. But you're doing drugs how often? Oh, every day. And that's what I think some people don't realize is you can be doing drugs and alcohol to Mm -hmm. that extent every Mm -hmm. day and people close to you not even know. Correct. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I had a pastor once who, um, he set up a meeting with me and went in and I was under the impression he wanted me to speak for his church. And, um, he goes, I'm just taking this meeting because my pastor told me I'm supposed to talk to you, but our church doesn't have a problem. I'm like, Oh, okay. He goes, yeah, we don't have any homeless people. You know, we don't have anyone who's unemployed. So we don't have anyone with a a substance abuse issue. And I was like, Oh, okay, well, I'll have a nice day. See you later. Mm -hmm. Walking out the door and I'm walking out. He goes, Oh, by the way, hold on. I have a question for you. It's like my, my cousin's husband is an alcoholic and we don't know how to help him. And you know, I'm a, I'm going to hit that out of the ballpark. And I'm like, is he homeless? <laughs> and he's like, no, I was like, does he have a job? And he was like, no, I, but there's a disconnect, you know, there's a disconnect that oftentimes we think only those who struggle with alcoholism or you know alcohol problem or drug addiction are someone who's destitute on the street. Yeah. Like they look a certain, they way. look a certain way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you would never, I mean, you can see my tattoos here, but if I was to button up, you'd never guess that I struggled with substance abuse before. You would never have guessed that I had a, had a problem with, with drugs or alcohol. But that's the thing about sin, right? Sin is, it's easy to hide. And, and when I, I'm teaching my emotions and addictions class, so what I'm telling my students is like, yeah, I had a problem with drugs and alcohol, but that doesn't mean that you're, you're without sin in your own life. You're like, mm-hmm. I'm going to pick on Kelly, right? Kelly gave up coffee for 30 oh, days. She was so grumpy. Your husband probably hates me, Kelly. <laughs> he does. Um, but I actually came up with that, um, this project that I do in my emotions as an addictions class, because I was speaking to a, a church and this was a Wednesday night group. So, you mm-hmm. know, that's all the old people, you know, mm-hmm. you know, young people on a Wednesday mm-hmm. night. Most, most Here churches. at our church we do. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, this church, to... this church, everyone's over the age of like 60. Oh, oh yeah. No opposite here. We opposite. have a ton of kids and students here on Wednesday yeah. night. And oh yeah. Not at this men. church. This church yeah. was all old people, okay. you know, and, and there were, I could just see the the look in there. I was like, I don't, I don't get what you're saying. Mm. So I asked him, how many of you drink coffee? And every single hand went up. I was like, how many of you drink more than three cups of coffee a day? Every single hand went up. And I was like, I want you to give it up for 30 days. And it's like, they wanted to like kill me. Yeah. They're like, I'm not, I'm not giving it's this up. It's an acceptable addiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and what we got to realize is that we're all recovering from something. Yeah. Each and every one of us. And, and while we... It's easy to point out the person who is addicted to drugs or alcohol. Look at them. Look mm-hmm. at look at the sin in their life. It's is what we're not realizing is we have our own junk in our life. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when I first came to to Southwestern, um, this was pre Nicole, my wife, pre pre marriage. Um, I had my own CrossFit place in California. I was in shape, not a shape round. You know, like <laughs> I, I I had a. I showed the picture one day in class and someone was like, who's that? And one of my other students, once I shared that, I was like, who ate him? And I'm like, thanks. Um, wow. I, oh no, I used, to, I used to be 
in, in shape. shape. Yeah, CrossFit, of yeah. course. Yeah, I was a poster child for CrossFit. Like, mm-hmm. I lived. Did you do the CrossFit games? No, I wasn't that good. I was <laughs> old. I mean, I started CrossFit in 2007. So this is before it was Soccer Mom CrossFit, where everyone was doing. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. You might have to delete that. But um, this was before everyone was doing it. I, I actually was doing it. Oh, wow. Look at you. He's yep. showing us a Cross picture of himself, fit. and he's showing his abs and his chest. Yeah, Cross I had a six-pack. Yeah. Not a keg. No. <laughs> you know, so, um, but, you know, I used to harp on pastors, like, how dare you say, you know, you look down on those who, who drink and, and do drugs when you're out there eating your cheeseburger and, and you know, fried chicken every day. And, ta-da, yeah. you know, look at me today. But we all have sin in our life. We all have mm-hmm. areas that we need to lay at the feet of Christ every single day. And it's just our, some sins just look different for other people. And we always harp on the eating and the drinking. And yet there's also this, the other side of people that work out too much. Like that they go to the extreme and they, it's so easy. Like that's no, I'm staying in shape. So that's clearly not a sin. Well, it's the stuff that gives us life in our mind, right? It's an idolatry issue. Exactly. It's an idol in our heart. Is that what you turn to before turning to the scripture? And when I was a CrossFit freak and I admit I was, I mean, I, that picture shows you you moved your addiction to something else. Yeah. Like your addiction had to move your focus moved to another thing. Yeah. Whenever I was angry or whenever I was frustrated, I went and lifted. Mm-hmm. You know, I had my own gym. I could go and lift any time of day. Mm-hmm. So instead of, you know, turning to drugs and alcohol when I was angry, I would turn to deadlifts. Like, I, I, that was my, my lift. I could deadlift. I was like in the top 99, oh, top 1% for my deadlifts because that's what I turned to whenever I was frustrated. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was that became a new idol in my life. And it's easier to do that. In reality, it's easier to do that than to pray and read the Bible. And think about it, right? Because I would agree with you. Praying, praying and read the Bible requires a, a different type of discipline in our life. And most of us don't have that discipline. It, it's, it's mm. a, it takes time. It doesn't come overnight. Mm. And, you know, it, it, you see that a lot with addicts. They replace their, yep. whatever their addiction with, with something else. You know, mm-hmm. some, some replace it with sex. Some replace it with working out. Some replace smoking. it with shopping, smoking, smoking cigarettes, toothpick, toothpicks to get off of smoking and rubber yeah. bands to get off the toothpicks. <laughs> it's the next thing. Yeah. yeah. So you're always trying to replace something with something else. And what you need to replace it with is, is a walk with the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, but that takes discipline and we don't live in a disciplined culture. No. You know, we, we default to all the easy things first and, and I, and if you're you're listening, like, well, he's judging me. I'm not judging him because I'm just as guilty as you of that. Right. You know. How did you wait real fast? How did you get off the drugs and that lifestyle to then get in to get healthy? Sure. Um, I just turned thirty. Um, that last New Year's Eve was always my favorite. Whatever party day, party night, because everybody's partying together. Everyone's too. partying together. Yeah. You know, I would have a, a booth at a nightclub, various nightclubs that, that I that I've frequented. I'd have you know booths at one two nightclubs. I'd take a bunch of friends. We go hang out at at the in the booths at the clubs. And and that last um, that last New Year's Eve, I didn't go. I mm-hmm. had the booths reserved. You know, I, I had the bottles reserved, and I ended up doing like a ton of cocaine that night by myself, Hmm. you know, and it was four in the morning. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? You know, um, there's a song. It's not a Christian song. It's a song called beautiful things by Andane and Tiesto. And it it, it just talks about like, 
what happened to my life? That life that I used to have, what, where is it? And that kind of started me to think like, maybe this isn't what I need to be doing. And um, a couple of weeks later, the girl I was quote unquote dating. Um, well, before that, my dad called me into, and this is just, this happened all on the same day. So first my dad called me at two, two in the afternoon and said, hey, after work, I want to talk to you. So I, I talked to my dad in, in his office and he said, um, hey, John, I want you to let you know that I love you, but God loves you more. And then he prayed for me and he goes, if there's anything wrong, tell me. I was like, I'm good. And then that same day I went to go pick up this girl I was, I guess, dating and um, picked her from the hospital. And she said that the doctor diagnosed her as paranoid schizophrenic because of how much cocaine she'd been doing. Mm. So a smart person would be like, we shouldn't do cocaine. Well, we're not smart. You know, we went to the bar and we drank and we did more cocaine and then went back to my house, you know, did more, more drugs. And at two in the morning, she started talking to my dog and I'm like, okay, this isn't, is this real? And I called my mom at two in the morning and said, mom, I'm a drug addict and I need help. Mm. You know, but it started with my dad's prayer, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I'm absolutely convinced that if it wasn't for my dad praying that prayer upon me, that I'd probably be dead by now. Did you, but you grew up, like you said, you grew up going to like a Baptist high school. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel the Lord like, Hey, you're not doing the right thing or you're not walking in the path with me. Like, did you ever feel his presence or like you were walking in sin since you knew what sin was? Yeah. But you, you become so desensitized to it. Yeah. Right. You, you keep rejecting God's call. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very, very quiet then. Yeah. Very quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did <laughs> funny sort of backtrack like nine years. Um, or eight years after I got kicked out of all the colleges and okay. my, my parents realized like, Hey, there's no more schools for you to go to mm-hmm. that summer. They gave me a choice. You can either go to a Christian boot camp, which was a Pentecostal. Oh, there you go. It was a Pentecostal mm-hmm. summer. <laughs> Did you laughing. end up going? Oh yeah, I went. So fun. Yeah, I went and it was a pen. <laughs> Whatever. It was a Pentecostal uh, summer school type of deal for for two and a half months and i went there and for two months i didn't do drugs two months i didn't do alcohol did you have side effects cold turkey that doing that i probably should have died yeah you know but by god's grace i did it you know we didn't i didn't know about delirium tremens right so if, if someone is struggling with alcoholism and they go cold turkey there's a possibility they could die of a heart attack it's called delirium mm-hmm. tremens right mm-hmm. and um I only found out about that when I worked in a sober living home. One of my guys had nine months sober and um, his dad was an alcoholic and he was so proud of his son that he decided to quit drinking that weekend and he dropped dead. Yep. He dropped dead of a heart attack because mm-hmm. he didn't get a medical detox. But those two months in, in, in Tennessee, um, yeah, I knew I was a sinner in need of a savior. You know, for two months I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't do anything. But as soon as I went back to Hawaii, I didn't change any of my friends. Hmm. And within, first it was, eh, I can just have a joint. And then a couple weeks later is, oh, I can drink. A couple weeks later is like, oh, I can do ecstasy. You know, so I went back to that lifestyle probably within a month and a half, two months of being back home. And that's, you know, I, I tell my class, like, that's where community is so important. Like, I hammer my students about if you're dealing with those who struggle with substance abuse, you can't just tell them, go to treatment, come come back home, go to work, and then spend eight hours in prayer. Like, that is an unrealistic expectation that we put on 
on those who struggle with addictions. Like you have to have a community there for them. And sometimes that means changing the community you have. Correct. It's a total immersion to a whole new life. So when I came back from rehab, like rehab, rehab, um, I had three amazing pastors who invested every single day. I had at least an hour with each and every one of them. You know, um, Carla Souza, uh, David Giomi, and Robert Miller. So my schedule was Mondays. Um, I go to work. Then I'd spend the afternoon at um, Carla Souza's house, and I'd do CrossFit for, you know, two, three hours with him, hang out, talk about scripture, whatever. And here's the thing. Carla didn't even know me before I came back from rehab. Mm. He was just at his co-pastor, David Giomi, who used to be my former bartender. And David brought me to their church, Manalana. And uh, the first weekend, Carla was like, yeah, you're coming over to my house to do CrossFit. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Mm. And I was just so ready to, to get help. But I would do CrossFit with Kaala on Mondays. On Tuesdays, I would do martial arts with Dave. He had a Christian martial arts school. So, you know, we, we prayed, we, we read scripture. So I'd spend, you know, three, four hours doing martial arts on Tuesdays. Wednesday mornings, I spent an hour in Bible study with Pastor Robert. Wednesday night, I had, um, I, in the afternoon, I did CrossFit. Wednesday night, I had a Bible study with David. Were Thursday, your evenings hard to not, like, that's when you were using before? So did, did you get... I hate the word triggered, but I'm going to use it. Did you get triggered because the sun went down and you were bored and that's the time that you usually filled with the drugs and the alcohol? No, because these guys loved on me and they invested in me. Because it sounds like even if you go progress that Thursday, you had something. Friday, you had something. Saturday, you had something. Every single day I had someone investing in me. Yeah, that's important. And and that's what I tell my students, that you can't do this alone. Right. You have to have a community. Mm -hmm. A community. And and like the numbers aren't that great. Like... uh, whatever a lot of churches have programs you know um, programs where we meet for an hour on friday night and then you talk to your whoever you Mm -hmm. know once a day Mm -hmm. for 10 minutes or five minutes just to check in and that's it that's investment that churches are doing and hey if that's all your church is doing great at least you're doing something Something. that's a springboard that you can Mm -hmm. jump off of but if you really want to impact lives, you got to invest in community. You, you got to have people willing to sacrifice their time. Now, one of my what, one of my first assignments I have with my students is I ask them, "What is something you like doing?" Okay, so we have forty people in the class. Forty people say, "I like to hike, I like to run, whatever." And then I challenge them: Would you be willing to give one hour per month to invest in what you enjoy with someone? And everyone says, "I can do that." So, what do you now actually have? Now you have 30 days that that person who needs help is being impacted by someone of the faith. And that changes lives. Like that's not just, now those numbers are horrible. You're not going to have a hundred people, you know, fixed or healed or whatever. Mm -hmm. You're just investing in one. (coughs) But what is a life worth? You know, and and I I think if more churches took on the discipleship aspect instead of a, a program aspect, that we would see more long-term sobriety happening in our churches. We see a lot of guys getting, you know, six months, nine months, one year. But when we, if you want to, like, move it out to a 10-year number, what does your numbers actually look like? Those numbers are not that great. Mm -mm. And why is that? Is because we're treating them as a client instead of treating them as a fellow believer. Preach. And true true change a program too true true change happens in discipleship and discipleship can't happen when there's 100 people there Mm -hmm. true discipleship is three or less Mm -hmm. ideally one-on-one but let's be realistic Uh, three or less is probably a more a number that that's more workable 
But even, you know, we we're discussing in class yesterday, I actually have an addictions program. And I'm like, everyone wants it to be where 10 people show up. And, and what I realized over the last, however long I've been working on this, it won't work. My, my model is intensive one-on-one discipleship where it's one person walking with one person for a year. So I'm going to call out the SBC on this because oh. here's one of my things. <laughs> oh boy. We, you talk about numbers. We point to attendance and numbers. I hate numbers. All the time. That was me hitting my head on the microphone. Of success. So programmatically, we've gone to programs because if we say, hey, we got 200 people to come to this, that is our version of success. But what's hard is you're saying for recovery and then even for future success as an individual, that won't even work. We're even, we're shooting ourselves in the foot because the very thing we're caught, it's not like, okay, worship service, catch your numbers, great. But we're talking a discipleship model is needed. Yeah. And I don't think it's just an SBC problem. It's a it's a church wide problem. Or, or so you're saying it's a culture church, it's a culture, westernized church problem. Because it, it's a numbers game. Yes. Right. So when when I approach you know pastors about this, like, so and, and I've even had pastors in the past say, "I'll support your ministry if you can promise me you'll be sober in a year." And I'm like, I can't promise you that. I can promise you probably for today or the next couple of days, but I don't know what's going to happen. And, and that's a that's the, a horrible deal there too but they're afraid like, to get called out correct because their leader ends yes. up having issues and they're afraid their church is going to yes. end up um on the front page of something but see if, let's think of it from a, a numbers a numbers game okay mm-hmm. so say i work with and i work with three guys intentionally a year like i see them every week i talk to them almost every day at least for the first two three months so say in one year i'm working with three guys okay right. and then those three guys disciple three guys it's the navigate. My dad was a navigator missionary. And so that's what they said all the time was that discipleship right. model one. And then those three guys take yep. three more each. And then it multiplies, multiplies, it, multiplies, yeah. but it takes time. Mm-hmm. And the worst, the worst word God ever created is time. It's a four letter word that no one likes. And the reason why we don't like the word time <laughs> that's good. is because we can't make more of it. Once it's gone, it's gone. We can't buy more time. It's pretty profound. Once it's gone, it's gone. You can't make more time. You can't. Yeah, that's true. But, but we're on such a time-driven model. Like, what kind of duplicatable numbers can I get? When I tell pastors, or, or even I tell my students, like, it's just one. Uh, 14 years ago, there was an ESPN um, documentary about a guy in, in New York City who helped addicts by help, teaching them how to run marathons. And, and over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it is, he had impacted thousands of people. And at the end of the at the end of the um, interview, the interviewer asked them, "So, what do you deem success?" And he said, "Just one." Mm-hmm. And that's kind of just been my mantra ever since. Is like, if I'm impacting just one life, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Because what if that one life that I impact becomes the next Billy Graham? Mm-hmm. Or if that that one life I impact becomes the next Martin Luther? I don't. Or what know. if not, and they just impact two more people? Correct. Yeah. Right. But we all we're always looking for the next Billy Graham Mm -hmm. or we're looking for the next Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just focus on the next Debbie or the next Christy? Mm -hmm. Because guess what? Their lives matter just as much as those other individuals. Right. But 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 we lose sight of that, that each life has value, you know, and 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 I I challenge my students, like, what is a life worth? I mean, really, what, what is a life worth? And, you know, I've been doing this for 
15 years now and I start my addictions class actually with a picture of the lives that I've lost along the way whether it's through suicide overdose one guy was a drug deal gone bad and he got shot in the head and it's like I would give up anything to have one more shot Mm -hmm. to witness to them or one more shot to like say hey this is going to cost you your life, but I don't have that time anymore. That time is gone. So what am I going to do with the rest of my time? Mm-hmm. You know, um, day 36 of my sobriety, I got a phone call from my former roommate. His name is Tate. And I was too busy with my time. I was watching a, a, a stupid movie. Um, I was watching a movie. I didn't pick up my phone. Called him back. He never picked up. Next morning, I got a phone call from my sponsor. And uh, he said, hey, by the way, Tate came by the rehab center last night. He hung out for about 15 minutes and then he went down to the pier. He cut him, he cut his wrist and he killed himself, you know, and, and he challenged me. So what are you going to do with that information? I said, I'll dedicate the rest of my life and the rest of my time to help any family who wants help mm-hmm. so that there won't be another Tate. And, and that's a pipe dream. Like I'm, I've had so many Tates since, but I can't stop trying, mm-hmm. you know, I can't stop investing in my students you know, I, I went to Southwestern in 2014 to get my master's degree. And the end goal was to go back to California, go back into working in the field. And I graduated in 2016. And, and my mentor at the time said, no, you need to go get a PhD. I'm like, I don't need a PhD. I'm like, what is it? I don't, I don't need a PhD to do what I do. And he was like, I need you to pray about it. <laughs> you know? I need you to pray about it. I need it. to pray about <laughs> That one you probably did. That one I actually did because yeah. I didn't want to do it. Uh-huh. You know, and you have to do an entrance exam. For, for PhD. And I'm like, I've done so much drugs. There's no way I'm going to pass this stupid entrance exam. And I remember I, I went and took it. And I forget, there's like 90 questions. And you had 90 minutes to answer 90 questions or whatever wow. it was. Wow. Yeah. It was at the 60 minute mark. And I was on question 20. <laughs> you should do C, 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 C for the rest of the questions. No, I just like stopped <laughs> thinking and I just filled it out. And I, I was like, all right, God, I'm done. I can go back to California. I'm going to fail. And for whatever reason, I passed. Like, I passed with flying colors. And I'm like, this test is stupid. Um, (laughs) I don't know how I passed with flying colors. And then first day of class for PhD studies, they're like, so who wants to be a professor? There's like 10 of us in the class. Nine raised their hand to be a professor. Guess who didn't raise his hand to be a professor? Me. Mm -hmm. Because my goal is I was supposed to go back to California and become a clinical director of a, a a rehab center, make a ton of money. And obviously that didn't (laughs) didn't happen. Mm -mm. But now what I realize is, is God's plans are perfect because now instead of me just going back to California, running a rehab and impacting, you know, 20 lives a year or whatever it is. Now I'm impacting hundreds of students every single year. Who are going to go on hopefully and prayerfully to impact other people. Correct. You know, and you wrote a a book. My loved one is an addict. Now what? Mm -hmm. A simple guide for families of addicts. They can get this on Amazon, by the way. Correct. When did you write this book and what led you to write this book? I, when did I write that book? I mm. wrote that book. Well, the reason why I wrote the book was all the families I've helped in California, they're like, you need to write a book. And I'm like, I don't want to write a book. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't enjoy writing. I, mean, I get you. It doesn't seem that way based on how much I've written, but I'd much rather spend my time with my son or doing something else. But, um, I was writing for a website called Integrative Recovery, and they had me doing weekly whatever entries. Weekly blogs. Weekly blogs. And the owner said that my entries were some of the most well-received or most commented on or whatever. So I was like, all right, I'll do this. And then 
you know, at Southwestern, I was known as an addiction guy, and I would always get families calling for help, and I never turned down anyone for help. So basically, I was like, all right, what, what would I, what should families know before they make a decision on whether or not to send their loved one to treatment? What is the best form of treatment? Where do they need to go? Is my is my loved one even someone who needs help? Hmm. You know, and this might ruffle some feathers, but you know, I get families to say, oh, my son is a pothead. I need to send him to rehab. I'm like, no, you don't. What you need to do is you need to discipline your kid. Mm. Most families don't like that. No. What does that look like disciplining a pothead? Uh, well, if they're in high school, take away their debit card. Mm. Take away their car. You know? Take away their means for getting what they want. Correct. Is what you're saying? And, and, then, well, and then parent. And then, be, yeah, don't expect the church to, you know, Jonathan Williams. Or the schools to parent. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. You opened that can of worms, so here we go, Christy. Go, go. Okay, so Jonathan Williams, he's one of my course. He got a PhD in, in um, family ministry at Southwestern. And he has a lecture about who actually influences your kids the most. Mm-hmm. And what he says is, all right, so if your church is doing a good job, right, and you're, say your kid goes to church um, Sunday morning, Wednesday, and then Friday, so three hours, a, three hours a week, right? So three hours a week times 52, that's 156 hours a year right. that the church is impacting your children. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, well, then the, the schools need to do their job. Well, okay, so a kid goes to school how many months out of the year? Eight? Mm-hmm. Eight months out of the year, five days a week, times eight hours. That's 322. That, that came out wrong. Mm-hmm. Eight hours, or eight, eight months times 30 times eight. There you go. Well, no, they're not in school for 30 days out of the eight months, though. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They're only in school for 20, 20. days. So 20 out of the eight months. times eight mm-hmm. times eight. So that comes mm-hmm. out to 1280. Yeah. So 1280 plus 156 is 1436. Mm-hmm. 1436. So 350, 365 times 24 is 8,760 hours. And you yeah. minus, oh, we'll go 1,400. That means the remaining 7,360 are hours are the parents' responsibility. That's right. It's not the churches and it's not the schools. It's your job as a parent to parent. Mm-hmm. And the pushback was, well, your parents raised you right and you still became an idiot. Well, that, that's right. Just because you parent perfectly doesn't mean that you can have a good kid. They got their own free will. God gave I them. Mean, I'm case in <laughs> point right. for that. You know, but, but that doesn't mean that the parent's job, if it wasn't for my parents investing what they did, I wouldn't have bounced back as quickly as I did either. Right? Because. Say that again. If my parents didn't parent me how well they did, I wouldn't have bounced back as quickly as I did. That's good. Because I bet they were still praying for you. They're and still I pray- bet they were still oh, loving yeah. you, caring caring for you. For sure. I mean, doing the best they knew how to do. They but, didn't acquiesce is what no, you're saying. No, but, but they also invested discipline in me. Like, mm. I actually have, my, my dad, you know, prototypical Japanese male, super disciplined when I was younger. And then I see him with his grandkids. I'm like, wait a second. Where was this that dad? That's not fair. That's not fair. Like, <laughs> but you know, my dad was on time. Mm-hmm. You know, you do your work. I mean, my dad is an engineer. I remember in, in high school or whatever, and he'd look over my math homework. I'd have the right answer, but he didn't like how messy it looked. And he goes, go do it again. That was my dad. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'm like dad, I have the right answer. Why do I got to redo it? Because there's smudges. So I'll just, no, you need to start from scratch. So, I mean, I had discipline in my life. I do that to my kids. (laughs) (laughs) But it taught me discipline. Mm -hmm. It teaches me to do things, Mm -hmm. not just. Or erase it totally. Yes. You're going to erase, don't just half erase it. Erase everything. Correct. And then start. Mm. But, you know, how am I, but 
I knew what the word of God said. You know, mm-hmm. I had read the Bible so many times as a child. I went to um, church, you know, this is back in the day. We had church on Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday, Friday mm-hmm. night for the youth, sure. right? That was, that, that's what I was raised with. So I heard all the truths of, of the word of God, right? And, and an amazing thing happens once you start to read, like, I remember this. I know what the stories are. I know of God's goodness. I know that, you know, that suffering happens. I know that um, there's a Proverbs that I can look for wisdom. There's a, a wise man and the fool. I know that I can go to Psalms to lament. I know there's lamentations to lament. I know that I know the gospel, right? So even though I was an idiot for 13 years, when I finally got my life back on track, going back to church wasn't that hard. Like I knew what the word of God actually said. It was just all up in my head. I didn't believe it in my heart. But it, it, my upbringing made it so much easier to get back on track because I knew I had parents who, who loved me and supported me. I knew that um, I moved back home at 30. I mean, that's kind of... You moved out at 17 and you moved back at 30. At 30. So that's you call cool, it because we... That's so like half of your life at home, half and of then, your life not, and yeah. then you come back home. Because um, you had oh, said that sweet. you called your mom at two in the morning, mm-hmm. said, hey, I'm an addict. I got to go. Yep. We didn't get to like her response and what happened... Like oh. how that progressed she was from like, there. She was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Like, cause it would have been total news to her, yeah. right? Total. So, I mean, that's also why I wrote the book. My love mm-hmm. was an act. Now what? Because then my mom went to my pastor. What should we do to help? I don't know. Then oh, they pastor went, didn't know. Pastor didn't know. Okay. This is night 2007, right? So okay. this is a while ago. Um, then they went to the convention. What are we supposed to do? I don't know. The SBC? Yes. Okay. So no one knew what to do. And, and, and what that book is basically for is, and I've, it's amazing. I have families who like, I'm willing to help read this book. If you need help, call me. And probably only 10% call me. Mm-hmm. And the 10% who call me are because I, where should I, like what, what institution or where should I send them? Mm-hmm. It's not to answer questions about what's going on with their kid. Cause I lay everything out. Like the drugs that they need to be mm-hmm. aware of, warning signs, all of that stuff. And then I go into, um, different options what what uh detox looks like what an intensive patient outpatient looks like what a residential treatment looks like what a sober living home looks like so everything is laid out for because you went to treatment right Mm -hmm. but then you had to come home and that's where you moved back in with mom and dad and then what was their role at that point to help you maintain sobriety their role when i came back home was um we set ground rules you know I, i moved back home i worked from eight to two i think it was just get a get a well job, easy job, no stress. Mm-hmm. I went back to work for my mom, but I was no longer in charge of anything. I was manager in name only, you know. Um, I didn't really do anything. I just helped book clients. I talked to the clients. I ordered stuff and then done. No stress, whatever. Um, and then I had a we we had a predetermined curfew. I'm thirty. Okay, and I had a curfew. So you have to agree to submit to this. Oh yeah, because you're like, I'm agreeing that this is an issue. Mm-hmm. I want to keep my sobriety. I want yep. that's important to me. Yeah, valuable enough to where I'm going to submit actually. Yeah, to Whatever authority somewhere else to make this work. Yeah, because I realized I'm an idiot. For 13 years, I proved to be a fool. Like the Proverbs talks about a fool. I was a fool, a mocker, a scoffer, every single idiot that's found in Proverbs. 
And, you know, Chris is like, you're using the word idiot. Well, no, no, I love hey, it. By the way, like, I, I asked my it. professor, Dr. John Babbler. I'm throwing him under the bus right now. I said, hey, Dr. Babbler, I call my boys idiots. Am I allowed to still use that term as a biblical counselor? And he was like, well, in the book of Proverbs, it talks about a fool. And what is a fool? And I was like, an idiot. He was like, then go for it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I, had to call, I started calling my kids. It happened twice. I called them, you're a fool. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, you're being foolish. Mm-hmm. And you're acting like an idiot. Yeah. And you're a turd. <laughs> Those are my three go-tos. Well, see, I, I haven't got to. Anyway, we're going to keep going on. We're not going to go to that third term yet. I have not gotten approval from anyone, and I'm not about to give you approval. Um, but, you know, I agreed to random drug testing. I agreed to um, following the rules of the house. Now, here, here's where, you know, what my family did to help me that's different. Um, 2007, my... University of Hawaii football team actually did well. Like, we don't win often. Well, kind of like UT recently, they don't win often either, right? Aren't you like the but Rainbows or something? Yeah, we're the Rainbow Warriors. Yeah, Rainbow Warriors. Yeah, I remember this. Super, yeah. super scary, right? Uh-huh. Um, but that particular, we went undefeated. Colt Brennan was our quarterback. We went undefeated. And my dad took me to every single UH football game that year. Mm. You know, so for five hours every Saturday, it was me and my dad, you know, and that relationship, rebuilding that relationship was so important for me because, um, and what I see a lot in addictions is they don't have a good male role model. This is for men and women. And I think that's the role where fathers need to be be present. Yes. You know, there's a statistic that said, like, what is the the likelihood of your children maintaining coming to church after they graduate from high school? And the statistics are pretty stark. Mm -hmm. If it's mom as the, the, the pusher of going to church, we're like in the low teens, but if it's the dad who's the driving force to go to church on Sundays, that number skyrockets to like high 80s, 90%, yep. right? So what, what you're seeing is the importance of a father figure. And I see that with the guys that I work with, probably, you know, 80% had poor relationships with dad or nor, or no dad. Mm. And the same with the women. A lot of the women did not have fathers active in their lives. And, that, and that's why they turned to bad guys, right? daddy issues right and and that's where where dads need to play a role and and by god's grace i had a father who um he invested every saturday with me after i got back from treatment it's not like he was a bad dad when i was in high school my dad would drive me to the beach to surf before i got my license my dad took off work to be at every single sporting event that i did when i was growing up basketball baseball he would leave work to be at my practices not just my games my dad was at my practices Mm -hmm. and and that father figure um, really helped me when I came back from treatment because I knew what it, I had a perfect example of what it was to be a good husband, a good father, a good son. And all I did after I got sober was I just modeled my life after my dad. You know, he took, he, he visited my grandmother every day after work, you know, after my grandfather, dad, my gra- my dad visited my grandmother every single day after work. My mom has been sick since, you know, my senior of high school. My dad has been by my mom's side every single day. He's never abandoned her. He, he's been a great father to me and my, my sister. He's an amazing grandfather, you know. So having that, that male role model really helps. And it, that doesn't minimize the role of mothers either, though, right? Mm-hmm. And my mom, you know, when I came back from treatment, um, we'd have um, special events at the house, you know, UFC fights or whatever. And my mom would be the one cooking. And my mom is sick. My mom was sick for 30 years, coming up on 30 years um, in January. And my mom would always cook for any events that I have at my house. So I, I had the, I had really, really amazing parents who, who've made this 
um, transition from being a fool to being a wise man pretty mm-hmm. easy. That's good. Well, and I think, and as we're wrapping up, we need to wrap up this first um, part. This is part one of this series we're doing with Dr. O. Part two is going to be kind of what the church can be doing in this area <laughs> and the things that you've addressed some with counseling and yeah. other books you've written. Um, but I think you've touched on too, there are women who don't have that man in their life, Mm -hmm. kids who don't have that father figure. And so that makes the role of the church and men in the church really, really, really important. And you talk and you see that just in the new Testament, even Mm -hmm. one thing um, I would love for you to, as we're closing this part, What would you say now where you're at, if you were going to talk about your life now or give a couple sentences about, Hey, this is where I'm at now looking at my journey. What would you say? Two words. I'm blessed, blessed beyond measure. Um, I have an amazing wife, Nicole, you know, she puts up with me. She allows me to do my job. Um, she allows me to travel. She allows me to do these things. Um, married way above my pay grade. Married way above my pay grade. Um, I have an amazing son named James. Um, He's three. I'm 40. I turned 47. So I had James Mm. late in life. Nicole's a lot younger. Nicole's 14 years younger than me. So um, there's that. Like that's how much above my pay grade I married. (laughs) Um, I'm blessed. Um, I I work for an amazing school, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. David Dockery is doing an amazing job with with some of the recent turmoil. He's brought stability and um, a calmness to the school. We have Dr. Madison Grace as our new provost, and, and he's just leading us in the right direction. I serve under Dr. Chris Shirley, who's the dean of the Terry School. He's such a kind man, and he, he's so pro-biblical counseling and, and pro-discipleship. Um, so the school is, is we're, we're coming back. I think we're, we're in good hands moving forward. You know, my, I have amazing parents who um, travel back and forth from Hawaii, so they spend two months in Hawaii, two, three months here in Texas, two months in Hawaii, two, three months back in, and, and they, my mom's health is a lot better. Um, and, and I'm just blessed. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it. We're going to wrap up this, um, segment for right now. And then, um, next week you'll get to hear, um, part two of this, which you do not want to miss. So, mm-hmm. um, for this week, that's it from us. This is Noisy Narratives Out. Bye. Life can be amazing